CD2 As Lord Vetinari's coach rattled off through the slush towards Gleam Street, it may have surprised its occupant to know that, in a cellar quite nearby, someone looking very much like him was chained to the wall. It was quite a long chain, giving him access to a table and chair, a bed, and a hole in the floor. Currently he was at the table. On the other side of it was Mr. Pin. Mr. Tulip was leaning menacingly against the wall. It would be clear to any experienced person that what was going on here was good cop, bad cop, with the peculiar drawback that there were no cops. There was just an apparently endless supply of Mr. Tulip. So, Charlie, said Mr. Pin, how about it? It's not illegal, is it? said the man addressed as Charlie. Mr. Pin spread his hands. What's legality, Charlie? Just words on paper. But you won't be doing anything wrong. Charlie nodded uncertainly. But ten thousand dollars doesn't sound like the kind of money you get for doing something right, he said. Not for just saying a few words. Mr. Tulip here once got even more money than that for saying just a few words, Charlie, said Mr. Pin soothingly. Yeah, I said give me all it in cash or the girl gets it, said Mr. Tulip. Was that right? said Charlie, who seemed to Mr. Pin to have a highly developed death wish. "'Absolutely right for that occasion, yes,' he said. "'Yeah, but it, it's not often people make money like that,' said the suicidal Charlie. His eyes kept straying to the monstrous bulk of Mr Tulip, who was holding a paper bag in one hand and in the other hand a spoon. He was using a spoon to ferry a fine white powder to his nose, his mouth, and, once Charlie could have sworn, his ear. "'Well, you are a special man, Charlie.' said Mr. Pin. And afterwards you will have to stay out of sight for a long time. Yeah, said Mr. Tulip in a spray of powder. There was a sudden strong smell of mothballs. All right, but, but why did you have to kidnap me then? One minute I was locking up for the night, next minute bang, and you've got me chained up. Mr. Pin decided to change tack. Charlie was arguing too much for a man in the same room as Mr. Tulip, especially a Mr. Tulip who was halfway through a bag of powdered mothballs. He gave him a big friendly smile. "'There's no point in dwelling on the past, my friend,' he said. "'This is business. All we want is a few days of your time, and then you end up with a fortune, and, I believe this is important, Charlie, a lifetime in which to spend it.' Charlie was turning out to be very stupid indeed. "'How do you know I won't tell someone?' he insisted. Mr. Pin sighed. "'We trust you, Charlie.' The man had run a clothes shop in Pseudopolis. Small shopkeepers had to be smart, didn't they? They were usually sharp as knives when it came to making just the right amount of wrong change. "'So much for physiognomy,' thought Mr. Pin. "'This man could pass for the patrician even in a good light, but while by all accounts Lord Vetinari would have already worked out all the nasty ways the future could go,' Charlie was actually entertaining the idea that he was going to come out of this alive and might even outsmart Mr. Pin. He was actually trying to be cunning. He was sitting a few feet away from Mr. Tulip, a man trying to snort crushed moth repellent, and he was trying guile. You almost had to admire the man. "'I'll need to be back by Friday,' said Charlie. "'It'll all be over by Friday, will it?' The shed that was now leased by the dwarfs had, in the course of its rickety life, been a forge and a laundry, 
and a dozen other enterprises, and had last been used as a rocking-horse factory by someone who had thought something was the next big thing when it was by then one day away from becoming the last big flop. Stacks of half-finished rocking-horses that Mr Cheese had been unable to sell for the back rent still filled one wall all the way to the tin roof. There was a shelf of corroding paint tins. Brushes had fossilised in their jars. The press occupied the centre of the floor with several dwarfs at work. William had seen presses. The engravers used them. This one had an organic quality, though. The dwarfs spent as much time changing the press as they did using it. Extra rollers appeared. Endless belts were threaded into the works. The press grew by the hour. Good Mountain was working in front of several of the large sloped boxes, each one of which was divided into several dozen compartments. William watched the dwarf's hand fly over the little boxes of leaden letters. Why is there a bigger box for the E's? Because that's the letter we use most of. Is that why it's in the middle of the box? Right. E's, then T's, then A's. I mean, people would expect to see A in the middle. We put E. But you've got more N's than U's, and U is a vowel. People use more N's than you think. On the other side of the room, Caslong's stubby dwarf fingers danced across his own boxes of letters. You can almost read what he's working on, William began. Good Mountain glanced up. His eyes narrowed for a moment. Make more money in your spare time, he said. Sounds like Mr Dibbler has been back. William stared down at the box of letters again. Of course a quill pen potentially contained anything you wrote with it. He could understand that. But it did so in a clearly theoretical way, a safe way. Whereas these dull grey blocks looked threatening. He could understand why they worried people. Put us together in the right way, they seemed to say, and we can be anything you want. We could even be something you don't want. We can spell anything. We can certainly spell trouble. The ban on movable type wasn't exactly a law, but he knew the engravers didn't like it, because they had the world operating just as they wanted it, thank you very much. And Lord Vetinari was said not to like it, because too many words only upset people. And the wizards and the priests didn't like it, because words were important. An engraved page was an engraved page, complete and unique. But if you took the leaden letters that had previously been used to set the words of a god, and then used them to set a cookery book, what did that do to the holy wisdom? For that matter, what would it do to the pie? As for printing a book of spells, and then using the same type for a book of navigation, well, the voyage might go anywhere. On cue, because history likes neatness, he heard the sound of a carriage drawing up in the street outside. A few moments later, Lord Vetinari stepped inside and stood leaning heavily on his stick and surveying the room with mild interest. "'Why, Lord de Word,' he said, looking surprised, "'I had no idea that you were involved in this enterprise.' William coloured as he hurried over to the city's supreme ruler. "'It's Mr. de Word, my lord.' "'Ah, yes, of course, indeed.' Lord Vetinari's gaze traversed the inky room paused a moment on the pile of madly smiling rocking-horses, and then took in the toiling dwarfs. "'Yes, of course. And are you in charge?' "'No one is, my lord,' said William. "'But Mr. Goodmountain over there seems to do most of the talking.' "'So what exactly is your purpose here?' 
Um, William paused, which he knew was never a good tactic with the patrician. Frankly, sir, it's warm, my office is freezing, and, well, it's fascinating. Look, I know it's not really... Lord Vetinari nodded and raised a hand. Be so good as to ask Mr. Goodmountain to come over here, will you? William tried to whisper a few instructions into Gunilla's ear as he hustled him over to the tall figure of the patrician. Ah, good, said the patrician. Now, I would just like to ask one or two questions, if I may. Goodmountain nodded. Firstly, is Mr. Cut My Own Throat Dibbler involved in this enterprise in any significant managerial capacity? What? said William. He hadn't been expecting this. Shifty fellow sells sausages. Oh, him, no, just the dwarfs. I see. And is this building built on a crack in space-time? What? said Gunilla. The patrician sighed. When one has been ruler of this city as long as I have, he said, one gets to know with a sad certainty that whenever some well-meaning soul begins a novel enterprise, they always, with some kind of uncanny foresight, sight it at the point where it will do maximum harm to the fabric of reality. There was that holy wood moving picture fiasco a few years ago, yes? And that music with rocks in business not long after. We never got to the bottom of that. And, of course, the wizards seem to break into the dungeon dimensions so often they might as well install a revolving door. And I'm sure I don't have to remind you what happened when the late Mr. Hong chose to open his three jolly luck takeaway fish bar in Dagon Street during the lunar eclipse. Yes? You see, gentlemen, it would be nice to think that someone, somewhere in this city, is engaged in some simple enterprise that is not going to end up causing tentacled monsters and dread apparitions to stalk the streets, eating people. So? What? said Goodmountain. We haven't noticed any cracks, said William. Ah, but possibly on this very site a strange cult once engaged in eldritch rites, the very essence of which permeated the neighbourhood, and which seeks only the right <laughs> circumstances to once again arise and walk around eating people. What? said Gunilla. He looked helplessly at William, who could only add, They made rocking horses here. Really? I've always thought there was something slightly sinister about rocking horses, said Lord Vetinari, but he looked subtly disappointed. Then he brightened up. He pointed to the big stone on which the type was arranged. Aha, he said, innocently taken from the overgrown ruins of a megalithic stone circle, this stone is redolent with the blood of thousands, I have no doubt, who will emerge to seek revenge you may depend upon it. It was cut especially for me by my brother, said Gunilla. And I don't have to take that kind of talk, mister. Who do you think you are, coming in here and talking daft like that? William stepped forward at a healthy fraction of the speed of terror. I wonder if I might just take Mr. Goodmountain aside and explain one or two things to him, he said quickly. The patrician's bright, inquiring smile did not so much as flicker. What a good idea, he said, as William frog-marched the dwarf into a corner. He will be sure to thank you for it later. Lord Vetinari stood leaning on his stick and looking at the press with an air of benevolent interest, while behind him William de Word explained the political realities of Ankh-Morpork, especially those relating to sudden death, with gestures. After thirty seconds of this, 
Good Mountain came back and stood four square in front of the patrician with his thumbs in his belt. "'I speak as I find me,' he said. "'Always have done, always will.' "'And what is it that you call a spade?' said Lord Vetinari. "'What? Never use spades?' said the glowering dwarf. "'Farmers use spades, but I call a shovel a shovel.' "'Yes, I thought you would.' said Lord Vetinari. "'Young William here says you're a ruthless despot who doesn't like printing. But I say you're a fair-minded man who won't stand in the way of an honest dwarf making a bit of a living. Am I right?' Once again Lord Vetinari's smile remained in place. "'Mr. De Word, a moment, please.' The patrician put his arm companionably round William's shoulders and walked him gently away from the watching dwarfs. "'I only said that some people call you,' William began. "'Now, sir,' said the patrician, waving this away, "'I think I might just be persuaded, against all experience, "'that we have here a little endeavour that might just be pursued "'without filling my streets with inconvenient occult rubbish. "'It is hard to imagine such a thing in Ankh-Morpork, "'but I could just about accept it as a possibility. "'And it so happens—' that I feel the question of printing is one that might, with care, be reopened. You do? Yes. So I am minded to allow your friends to proceed with their folly. Uh, they're not exactly, William began. Of course, I should add that, in the event of there being any problems of a tentacular nature, you would be held personally responsible. Me? But I... "'Ah, you feel that I am being unfair, ruthlessly despotic, perhaps. "'Well, I, er, uh, apart from anything else, "'the dwarfs are a very hard-working and valuable ethnic grouping in the city,' said the patrician. "'On the whole, I wish to avoid any low-level difficulties at this time, "'what with the unsettled situation in Uberwald and the whole Muntab question. "'Where's Muntab?' said William. Exactly. How is Lord de Word, by the way? You should write to him more often, you know. William said nothing. I always think it is a very sad thing when families fall out, said Lord Vetinari. There is far too much mutton-headed ill-feeling in the world. He gave William a companionable pat. I am sure you will see to it that the printing enterprise stays firmly in the realms of the cult the canny, and the scrutable. Do I make myself clear? But I don't have any control of... Hmm? Yes, Lord Vetinari, said William. Good, good. The patrician straightened up, turned, and beamed at the dwarfs. Jolly good, he said. My word, lots of little letters, all screwed together. Possibly an idea whose time has come. I may even have an occasional job for you myself. William waved frantically at Gunilla from behind the patrician's back. Special rate for government jobs, the dwarf muttered. Oh, but I wouldn't dream of paying any less than other customers, said the patrician. I wasn't going to charge you less than... Well, I'm sure we've all been very pleased to see you here, your lordship, said William brightly, swivelling the patrician in the direction of the door. We look forward to the pleasure of your custom. "'Are you quite sure Mr. Dibbler isn't involved in this concern?' "'I think he's having some things printed, but that's all,' said William. "'Astonishing! Astonishing!' said Lord Vetinari, getting into his coach. "'I do hope he isn't ill.' 
two figures watched his departure from the rooftop opposite. One of them said, very, very quietly. The other said, You have a point of view, Mr. Tulip. And he's the man who runs the city? Yeah. So where's his ing bodyguards? If we wanted to scrag him, here and now, how useful would, say, four bodyguards be? As a ink chocolate kettle, Mr. Pin. There you are, then. But I could knock him over from here with a ink brick. I gather there are many organisations who hold views on that, Mr. Tulip. People tell me this dump is thriving. The man at the top has a lot of friends when everything is going well. You would soon run out of bricks. Mr. Tulip looked down at the departing coach. From what I hear, he mostly doesn't do a ing thing, he complained. Yeah, said Mr. Pin smoothly. One of the hardest things to do properly in politics. Mr. Tulip and Mr. Pin brought different things to their partnership, and in this instance, what Mr. Pin brought was political savvy. Mr. Tulip respected this, even if he didn't understand it. He contented himself with muttering, It would be simpler to ing kill him. Oh, for a ing-simple world, said Mr. Pin. Look, lay off the honk, eh? That stuff's for trolls. It's worse than slab. And they cut it with ground glass. It's chemical, said Mr. Tulip, sullenly. Mr. Pin sighed. Shall I try again, he said. Listen carefully. Drugs equals chemicals, but... And please do listen to this part... Sheesh! Chemicals do not equal drugs. Remember all that trouble with the calcium carbonate when you paid the man five dollars? Made me feel good, muttered Mr. Tulip. Calcium carbonate, said Mr. Pin. Even for you, I mean. Look, you put up your actual nose enough chalk that someone could probably cut your head off and write on a blackboard with your neck. That was the major problem with Mr. Tulip, he thought, as they made their way to the ground. It wasn't that he had a drugs habit. He wanted to have a drugs habit. What he had was a stupidity habit, which cut in whenever he found anything being sold in little bags. And this had resulted in Mr. Tulip seeking heaven in flour, salt, baking powder and pickled beef sandwiches. In a street where furtive people were selling clang, slip, Chop, rhino, skunk, triplin, floats, honk, double honk, gongers and slack. Mr Tulip had an unerring way of finding the man who was retailing curry powder at what worked out as $600 a pound. It was so ing-embarrassing. Currently, he was experimenting with the whole range of recreational chemicals available to Ankh-Morpork's troll population because at least when dealing with trolls, Mr Tulip had a moderate chance of outsmarting somebody. In theory, slab and honk shouldn't have any effect on the human brain, apart from maybe dissolving it. Mr Tulip was hanging in there. He'd tried normality once and hadn't liked it. Mr Pin sighed again. Come on, he said. Let's feed the geek. In Ink Morpork, it is very hard to watch without being watched in turn and the two furtive watchers were indeed under careful observation. They were being watched by a small dog 
variously coloured, but mainly a rusty grey. Occasionally it scratched itself with a noise like someone trying to shave a wire brush. There was a piece of string around its neck. This was attached to another piece of string, or rather, to a length made up of pieces of string inexpertly knotted together. The string was being held in the hand of a man. At least, such might be deduced from the fact that it disappeared into the same pocket of the grubby coat as one's sleeve, which presumably had an arm in it, and theoretically, therefore, a hand on the end. It was a strange coat. It stretched from the pavement almost to the brim of the hat above it, which was shaped rather like a sugar loaf. There was a suggestion of grey hair around the join. One arm burrowed in the suspicious depths of a pocket and produced a cold sausage. Two men spine on a patrician, said the dog. An interesting thing. Bagram, said the man, and broke the sausage into two democratic halves. William wrote a short paragraph about Patrician Visits the Bucket and examined his notebook. Amazing, really. He'd found no less than a dozen items for his newsletter in only a day. It was astonishing what people would tell you if you asked them. Someone had stolen one of the golden fangs of the statue of Offler the Crocodile God. He'd promised Sergeant Colon a drink for telling him that, but in any case had got some way towards payment by appending to his paragraph the sentence, The watch are mightily in pursuit of the wrongdoer, and are confident of apprehension at an early juncture. He was not entirely sure about this, although Sergeant Colon had looked very sincere when he said it. The nature of truth always bothered William. He had been brought up to tell it, or more correctly, to own up, and some habits are hard to break if they've been beaten in hard enough. And Lord de Word had inclined to the old proverb that, as you bend the twig so grows the tree. William had not been a particularly flexible twig. Lord de Word had not himself been a violent man. He'd merely employed them. Lord de Word, as far as William could recall, had no great enthusiasm for anything that involved touching people. Anyway, William always told himself, he was no good at making things up. Anything that wasn't the truth simply unravelled for him. Even little white lies like, I shall definitely have the money by the end of the week, always ended in trouble. That was telling stories, a sin in the De Word compendium that was worse than lying. It was trying to make lies interesting. So William De Word told the truth, out of cosmic self-defence. He'd found a hard truth less hard than an easy lie. There had been rather a good fight in the mended drum. William was very pleased with that one. Whereupon Breezok the Barbarian picked up a table and delivered a blow to Moulton the Snatcher, who in his turn seized hold of the chandeliers and swung thereon the while crying, Take that, thou B.ST.RD, that you are. At which juncture a ruckus commenced and five or six people were hurt. He took it all down to the bucket. Gunilla read it with interest. It seemed to take very little time for the dwarfs to set it up in type. And it was odd, but... Once it was in type, all the letters so neat and regular, it looked more real. Bodney, who seemed to be second in command of the prince room, squinted at the columns of type over Good Mountain's shoulders. Hmm, he said. What do you think? said William. It looks a bit grey, said the dwarf. All the type bunched up. Looks like a book. Well, that's all right, isn't it? said William. Looking like a book sounded like a good thing. 
"'Maybe you want to get it more sort of spaced out,' said Gunova. William stared at the printed page. An idea crept over him. It seemed to evolve from the page itself. "'How about,' he said, "'if we put a little title on each piece?' He picked up a scrap of paper and doodled, Five stroke six hurt in tavern brawl. Bodney read it solemnly. "'Yes,' he said eventually. "'That looks suitable.' He passed the paper across the table. "'What do you call this news sheet?' he said. "'I don't,' said William. "'But you've got to call it something,' said Bodney. "'What do you put at the top?' "'Generally something like, "'To my lord the—' William began. Bodney shook his head. "'You can't put that,' he said. "'You want something a bit more general, more snappy.' "'How about ank more pork items?' said William. "'Sorry, but I'm not much good at names.' Gunilla pulled his little hod out of his apron and selected some letters from one of the cases on the table. He screwed them together, inked them, and rolled a sheet of paper over them. William read, Ank, more pork, times. Messed that up a bit. Wasn't paying attention, muttered Gunilla, reaching for the type. William stopped him. I don't know, he said. Um, leave it as it is. Just make it a bigger T and a smaller I. That's it, then, said Gunilla. All done. All right, lad? "'How many copies do you want?' "'Er, uh, twenty? Thirty? "'How about a couple of hundred? Gunilla nodded at the dwarfs who set to work. "'It's hardly worth going to press for less.' "'Good grief! "'I can't imagine there's enough people in the city "'that'll pay five dollars. "'All right. "'Charge them half a dollar. "'Then it'll be fifty dollars for us, "'and the same for you.' "'My word, really?' "'William stared at the beaming dwarf. "'But I've still got to sell them,' he said. "'It's not as though they're cakes in a shop. "'It's not like... He sniffed. His eyes began to water. "'Oh, dear,' he said. "'We're going to have another visitor. I know that smell.' "'What smell?' said the dwarf. The door creaked open. There was this to be said about the smell of foul old Ron, an odour so intense that it took on a personality of its own and fully justified the capital letter. After the initial shock, the organs of smell just gave up and shut down, as if no more able to comprehend the thing than an oyster can comprehend the ocean. After some minutes in its presence, wax would trickle out of people's ears and their hair would begin to bleach. It had developed to such a degree that it now led a semi-independent life of its own and often went to the theatre by itself or read small volumes of poetry. Ron was outclassed by his smell. Foul old Ron's hands were thrust deeply into his pockets, but from one pocket issued a length of string or, rather, a great many lengths of string tied together into one length. The other end was attached to a small dog of the greyish persuasion. It was possibly a terrier. It walked with a limp, and also in a kind of oblique fashion, as though it was trying to insinuate its way through the world. It walked like a dog who has long ago learned that the world contains more thrown boots than meaty bones. It walked like a dog that was prepared at any moment to run. It looked up at William with crusted eyes, and said, Woof! William felt he ought to stand up for mankind. Sorry about the smell, he said. Then he stared at the dog. What's this smell you keep going on about? said Gunilla. The rivets on his helmet were beginning to tarnish. It uh, belongs to Mr. Uh, Ron, said William, still giving the dog a suspicious look. People say it's glandular. He was sure he'd seen the dog before, 
It was always in the corner of the picture, as it were, ambling through the streets or just sitting on a corner watching the world go by. "'What does he want?' said Gunnar. "'Do you think he wants us to print something?' "'Shouldn't think so,' said William. "'He's a sort of beggar. Only they won't let him in the Beggar's Guild any more.' "'He isn't saying anything.' "'Well, usually he just stands there until people give him something to go away. Um, you've heard of things like the Welcome Wagon, where various neighbours and traders greet newcomers to an area?' Yes. Well, this is the dark side. Foul old Ron nodded and held out a hand. It's right, Mr. Push. Don't try the blarney gobble on me, Juggins. I told them I ain't slanging the gentry, buggerit. Millennium and and shrimp, dang. A woof. William glared at the dog again. Growl, it said. Gunilla scratched somewhere in the recesses of his beard. One thing I already noticed about this here town, he said is that people will buy practically anything of a man in the street. He picked up a handful of the news sheets, still damp from the press. "'Can you understand me, mister?' he said. "'Bagrit!' Gunilla nudged William in the ribs. "'Does that mean yes or no, do you think?' "'Probably yes.' "'Okay. Well, see here now. If you sell these things at, oh, twenty pence each, you can keep—' "'Hey, you can't sell it that cheap,' said William. "'Why not?' "'Why? Because—because—because—' "'Well, anyone will be able to read it. That's why.' "'Good, because that means anyone will be able to pay twenty pence,' said Gunilla calmly. "'There's lots more poor folk than rich folk, and it's easier to get money out of them.' He grimaced at foul old Ron. "'This may seem a strange question,' he said. "'But have you got any friends?' "'I told him. I told him. Bugger him. "'Probably yes,' said William. "'He hangs out with a bunch of, uh, unfortunates who live under one of the bridges. Well—' "'Not exactly hangs out, more droops.' "'Well, now,' said Gunilla, waving the copy of the Times at Ron, "'you can tell them that if they can sell these to people for twenty pence each, "'I'll let you keep one nice shiny penny.' "'Yeah, and you can put your nice shiny penny where the sun don't shine,' said Ron. "'Oh, so you—' Gunilla began. "'William laid a hand on his arm. "'Sorry, just a minute.' "'What was that you said, Ron?' he said. "'Bagrit,' said foul old Ron.' It had sounded like Ron's voice, and it had seemed to come from the general area of Ron's face. It was just that it had demonstrated a coherence you didn't often get. "'You want more than a penny?' said William, carefully. "'Got to be worth five pence a time,' said Ron, more or less. For some reason, William's gaze was dragged down to the small grey dog. It returned it amiably and said, "Woof." He looked back up again. "'Are you all right, foul old Ron?' he said. "'Got the gear, got the gear,' said Ron, mysteriously. "'All right, two pence,' said Gunilla. Four, Ron seemed to say. "'But let's not mess about, OK? One dollar per thirty. "'It's a deal,' said Good Mountain, who spat in his hand and would have held it out to seal the contract if William hadn't gripped it urgently. "'Don't! What's wrong?' William sighed. "'Have you got any horribly disfiguring diseases?' "'No.' "'Do you want some?' "'Oh!' Gunilla lowered his hand. "'You tell your friends to get round here right now, okay?' he said. He turned to William. "'Trustworthy, are they?' "'Well, sort of,' said William. "'It's probably not a good idea to leave paint thinners around.' Outside, foul old Ron and his dog ambled down the street, and the strange thing was that a conversation was going on, even though there was technically only one person there. "'See?' I told you, you just let me do the talking, all right. 
Bagrit. Right. You stick with me and you won't go far wrong. Bagrit. Really? Well, I suppose that'll have to do. Bark, bark. Twelve people lived under the misbegot bridge and in a life of luxury, although luxury is not hard to achieve when you define it as something to eat at least once a day and especially when you have such a broad definition of something to eat. Technically, they were beggars, although they seldom had to beg. Possibly they were thieves, although they only took what had been thrown away, usually by people hurrying to be out of their presence. Outsiders considered that the leader of the group was Coffin Henry, who would have been the city's champion expectorator if anyone else had wanted the title. But the group had the true democracy of the voteless. There was Arnold Sideways, whose lack of legs only served to give him an extra advantage in any pub fight, where a man with good teeth at groin height had it all his own way. And if it wasn't for the duck whose presence on his head he consistently denied, the duck man would have been viewed as well-spoken and educated, and as sane as the next man. Unfortunately, the next man was foul old Ron. The other eight people were altogether Andrews. Altogether Andrews was one man with considerably more than one mind. In a rest state, when he had no particular problem to confront, there was no sign of this except a sort of background twitch and flicker as his features passed randomly under the control of variously Jossie, Lady Hermione, Little Sidney, Mr Viddle, Curly, the Judge and Tinker. There was also Burke, but the crew had only ever seen Burke once and never wanted to again, so the other seven personalities kept him buried. Nobody in the body answered to the name of Andrews. In the opinion of the Duckman, who was probably the best in the crew at thinking in a straight line, Andrews had probably been some innocent and hospitable person of a psychic disposition who had simply been overwhelmed by the colonising souls. Only among the gentle crew under the bridge could a consensus person like Andrews find an accommodating niche. They'd welcomed him, or them, to the fraternity around the smoky fire. Someone who wasn't the same person for more than five minutes at a time could fit right in. One other thing that united the crew, although probably nothing could unite altogether Andrews, was a readiness to believe that a dog could talk. The group around the smouldering fire believed they had heard a lot of things talk, such as walls. A dog was easy by comparison. Besides, they respected the fact that Gaspode had the sharpest mind of the lot and never drank anything that corroded the container. "'Let's try this again, shall we?' he said. "'If you sell thirty of the things, you'll get a dollar. A whole dollar. Got that?' Bagrit. Quack. "'How much is that in old boots?' Gaspode sighed. "'No, Arnold, you can use the money to buy as many old—' There was a rumble from Altogether Andrews, and the rest of the crew went very still. When Altogether Andrews was quiet for a while, you never knew who he was going to be. There was always the possibility that it would be Burke. "'Can I ask a question?' said Altogether Andrews, in a rather hoarse treble. The crew relaxed. That sounded like Lady Hermione. She wasn't a problem. "'Yes, Your Ladyship? This wouldn't be work, would it?' The mention of the word sent the rest of the crew into a fugue of stress and bewildered panic. No, 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 said Gaspode hurriedly. It's hardly work, is it? Just handing out stuff and taking money. Doesn't sound like work to me. I ain't working, shouted Coffin Henry. I am socially inadequate in the whole area of doing anything. We do not work, said Arnold sideways. We is gentlemen of leisure you are. Ahem. 
said Lady Hermione. Uh, "'Gentlemen and ladies of Lesuire,' said Arnold gallantly. "'This is a very nasty winter. Extra money would certainly come in handy,' said the duckman. "'What for?' said Arnold. "'We could live like kings on a dollar a day, Arnold.' "'What, you mean someone would chop our heads off?' "'No, I... Someone would climb up inside a privy with a red-hot poker and... "'No, I meant someone would drown us in a butt of wine. "'No, that's dying like kings, Arnold.' "'I shouldn't reckon there's a butt of wine big enough "'that you couldn't drink your way out of,' muttered Gaspode. "'So, what about it, masters? "'Oh, and mistress, of course. "'Shall I... shall Ron tell the lad that we're up for it?' "'Indeed. Okay. <coughs> Back it. They looked at altogether Andrews. His lips moved, his face flickered. Then he held up five democratic fingers. "'The eyes have it,' said Gaspode. Mr. Pin lit a cigar. Smoking was his one vice. At least, it was his only vice that he thought of as a vice. All the others were just job skills. Mr. Tulip's vices were also limitless, but he owned up to cheap aftershave because a man has to drink something.' The drugs didn't count, if only because the only time he'd ever got real ones was when they'd robbed a horse doctor and he'd taken a couple of big pills that had made every vein in his body stand out like a purple hosepipe. The pair were not thugs. At least, they did not see themselves as thugs, nor were they thieves. At least they never thought of themselves as thieves. They did not think of themselves as assassins. Assassins were posh and had rules. Pin and Tulip the new firm, as Mr. Pin liked to refer to themselves, did not have rules. They thought of themselves as facilitators. They were men who made things happen, men who were going places. It has to be added that when one says they thought, it means Mr. Pin thought. Mr. Tulip used his head all the time, from a distance of about eight inches, but he was not, except in one or two unexpected areas, a man given much to using his brain. On the whole, he left Mr. Pin to do the polysyllabic cogitation. Mr. Pin, on the other hand, was not very good at sustained mindless violence, and admired the fact that Mr. Tulip had an apparently bottomless supply. When they had first met, and had recognised in each other the qualities that would make their partnership greater than the sum of its parts, he'd seen that Mr. Tulip was not, as he appeared to the rest of the world, just another nut-job. Some negative qualities can reach a pitch of perfection that changes their very nature, and Mr. Tulip had turned anger into an art. It was not anger at anything. It was just pure, platonic anger from somewhere in the reptilian depths of the soul, a fountain of never-ending red-hot grudge. Mr. Tulip lived his life on that thin line most people occupy just before they haul off and hit someone repeatedly with a spanner. For Mr. Tulip, anger was the ground state of being. Pin had occasionally wondered what had happened to the man to make him as angry as that, but to Tulip the past was another country with very, very well-guarded borders. Sometimes Mr. Pin heard him screaming at night. It was quite hard to hire Mr. Tulip and Mr. Pin, you had to know the right people. To be more accurate, you had to know the wrong people, and you got to know them by hanging around a certain kind of bar and surviving, which was 
kind of a first test. The wrong people, of course, would not know Mr Tulip and Mr Pin, but they would know a man, and that man would, in a general sense, express the guarded opinion that he might know how to get in touch with men of a pin-like or tulipolitic disposition. He could not exactly recall much more than that at the moment, due to memory loss brought on by lack of money. Once cured, he might indicate in a general kind of way another address where you would meet, in a dark corner, a man who would tell you emphatically that he had never heard of anyone called Tulip or Pin. He would also ask you where you would be at, say, nine o'clock tonight. And then you would meet Mr Tulip and Mr Pin. They would know you had money, they would know you had something on your mind, and, if you had been really stupid, they now knew your address. It had therefore come as a surprise to the new firm that their latest client had come straight to them. This was worrying. It was also worrying that he was dead. Generally the new firm had no problem with corpses, but they didn't like them to speak. Mr Slant coughed. Mr Pin noticed that this created a small cloud of dust, for Mr Slant was a zombie. "'I must reiterate,' said Mr Slant, "'that I am a mere facilitator in this matter.' "'Just like us,' said Mr Tulip. Mr Slant indicated with a look that he would never in a thousand years be just like Mr Tulip, but he said, "'Quite so.' My clients wished me to find some experts. I found you. I gave you some sealed instructions. You have accepted the contract. And I understand that as a result of this, you have made certain arrangements. I do not know what those arrangements are. I will continue not to know what those arrangements are. My relationship with you is, as they say, on the long finger. Do you understand me? What in finger is that? said Mr Tulip. He was getting jittery in the presence of the dead lawyer. We see each other only when necessary. We say as little as possible. I ain't in zombies, said Mr Tulip. That morning he tried something he'd found in a box under the sink. If it cleaned drains, he'd reasoned, that meant it was chemical. Now he was getting strange messages from his large intestine. "'I am sure the feeling is mutual,' said Mr Slant. "'I understand what you're saying,' said Mr Pin. "'You're saying that if this goes bad you've never seen us in your life.' <coughs> Mr Slant coughed. "'Your after-life.' Mr. Pin corrected himself. OK, what about the money? As requested, $30,000 for special expenses will be included in a sum already agreed. In gems, not cash? Of course. And my clients would hardly write you a cheque. It will be delivered tonight. And perhaps I should mention one other matter. His dry fingers shuffled through the dry papers in his dry briefcase, and he handed Mr. Pin a folder. Mr. Pin read it. He turned a few pages quickly. "'You may show it to your monkey,' said Mr. Slant. 
Mr. Pin managed to grab Mr. Tulip's arm before it reached the zombie's head. Mr. Slant did not even flinch. "'He's got the story of our lives, Mr. Tulip.' "'So I can still rip his ink-stitched-on head right off.' "'No, you cannot,' said Mr. Slant. "'Your colleague will tell you why.' "'Because our legal friend here will have made a lot of copies, won't you, Mr. Slant?' and probably lodge them in all kinds of places in case he duck in case he of accidents said mr slant smoothly well done you have had an interesting career so far gentlemen you are quite young your talents have taken you a long way in a short time and given you quite a reputation in your chosen profession while, of course, I have no idea about the task you are undertaking, no idea whatsoever, I must stress, I have no doubt that you will impress us all. Does he know about the contract in Quirm? said Mr. Tulip. Yes, said Mr. Pin. That stuff with the wine in and the crabs and that ing-banker? Yes. And the thing with the puppies and that kid? "'He does now,' said Mr. Pin. "'He knows nearly everything. Very clever. "'You believe you know where the bodies are buried, Mr. Slant?' "'I've talked to one or two of them,' said Mr. Slant. "'But it would appear that you have never committed a crime within Ankh-Morpork. "'Otherwise, of course, I could not talk to you.' "'Who says we've never committed a ing-crime in Ankh-Morpork?' "'Mr. Tulip demanded in an offended tone. "'As I understand it, you have never been to this city before.' "'Well, we've had all ing-day.' "'Have you been caught?' said Mr. Slant. "'No.' "'Then you have committed no crime. "'May I express the hope that your business here does not involve any kind of criminal activity? Perish the thought, said Mr. Pin. The city watch here are quite dogged in some respects, and the various guilds jealously guard their professional territories. We hold the police in high regard, said Mr. Pin. We have a great respect for the work they do. We... Ing love policemen, said Mr. Tulip. If there was a policeman's ball, we would be among the first to buy a ticket, said Mr. Pin. Especially if it was mounted on a plinth or a little display stand of some sort, said Mr. Tulip, cause we like beautiful things. I just wanted to be sure that we understood one another, said Mr. Slant, snapping his case closed. He stood up, "'nodding to them and walked stiffly out of the room. "'What up?' Mr. Tulip began, "'but Mr. Pin raised a finger to his lips. "'He crossed silently to the door and opened it. "'The lawyer had gone. "'He knows what we're ing here for,' Mr. Tulip whispered hotly. "'What's he ing pretending for?' "'Because he's a lawyer,' said Mr. Pin. "'Nice place, this,' he added in a slightly over-loud voice. "'Mr. Tulip looked around. "'Nah,' he said dismissively. I thought that at the start, but it's just a late 18th century copy of the Ing Baroque style. They got the dimensions all wrong. Did you see them pillars in the hall, did you? 
ing sixth-century Ephebian with Second Empire Jellababian ing finials. It was all I could do not to laugh. Yes, said Mr. Pin. As I have remarked before, Mr. Tulip, in many ways you are a very unexpected man. Mr. Tulip walked over to a shrouded picture and tweaked the cloth aside. Well, me, it's a ing de quirm, he said. I seen a print of it. Woman holding ferret. He did it just after he moved from Genua and was influenced by Ing Caravati. Look at that Ing brushwork, will you? See the way the line of the end draws the Ing eye into the picture? Look at the quality of the light on the landscape you can see through the Ing window there. See the way the ferret's nose follows you around the room? That's Ing genius, that is. I don't mind telling you that if I was here by myself, I'd be in Ing tears. It's very pretty. Pretty, said Mr. Tulip, despairing of his colleague's taste. He walked over to a statue by the door and stared hard at it, then ran his fingers lightly across the marble. I thought so. This is a Ingsculpini. I bet anything. But I've never seen it in a catalogue, and it's been left in an empty house where anyone could just ing walk in and nick it. This place is under powerful protection. You saw the seals on the door. Guilds, bunch of ing amateurs. We could go through this place like a hot knife through ing thin ice, and you know it. Amateurs and rocks and lawn ornaments and dead men walking about. We could knock this ing city over. Mr. Pin said nothing. A similar idea had occurred to him, but unlike with his colleague, Deed did not automatically follow upon what passed for thought. The firm had indeed not operated in Ankh-Morpork before. Mr. Pin had kept away because, well, there were plenty of other cities, and an instinct for survival had told him that the big Wahoonie, the world's rarest and most evil-smelling vegetable, and consequently much prized by connoisseurs, who seldom prize anything cheap and common, also a slang name for Ankh-Morpork, although it does not smell as bad as that. An instinct for survival had told him that the big Wahoonie should wait a while. He'd had a plan ever since he'd met Mr. Tulip and found that his own inventiveness, combined with Tulip's incessant anger, promised a successful career. He'd developed their business in Genua, Pseudopolis, Querm, cities smaller and easier to navigate than Ankh-Morpork, although these days it seemed they increasingly resembled it. The reason that they had done well, he'd realised, was that sooner or later people went soft. Take the trollish Breccia, for instance. Once the honk and slab route had been established all the way to Überwald, and the rival clans had been eliminated, the trolls had got soft. The tons acted like society lords. It was the same everywhere. The big old gangs and families reached some kind of equilibrium with society and settled down to be a specialist kind of businessman. They cut down on henchmen and employed butlers instead. And then, when there was a bit of difficulty... They needed muscle that could think. And there was the new firm ready and willing. And waiting. One day there'd be time for a new generation, Mr. Pin thought. One with a new way of doing things. One without the shackles of tradition holding them back. Happening people. Mr. Tulip, for example, happened all the time. Hey, will you ing look at this? said the happening Tulip, who had uncovered another painting. Signed by Gogli, but it's a ing fake. 
Look at the way the light falls here, will you? And the leaves on this tree? If Ingogli painted that, it was with his ing foot, probably some ing pupil. While they had been marking time in the city, Mr. Pin had followed Mr. Tulip, trailing scouring powder and canine worming tablets through one after another of the city's art galleries. The man had insisted. It had been an education, mostly for the curators. Mr. Tulip had the instinct for art, which he did not have for chemistry. Sneezing icing sugar and dribbling foot powder, he was ushered into private galleries where he ran his bloodshot eye over nervously proffered trays of ivory miniatures. Mr. Pin had watched in silent admiration while his colleague spoke colourfully and at length on the differences between ivory faked the old way with bones and the ing new way the ing dwarfs had come up with using ing refined oil, chalk and ing spirits of knackle. He'd lurched over to the tapestries, declaimed at length about high and low weaving, burst into tears in front of a verdant scene, and then demonstrated that the gallery's prized 13th-century stow-latch tapestry couldn't be more than a hundred years old, because, see that ing bit of purple there? No way was that ing die around then. And what's this? An Agatean embalming pot from the Puggy Sioux dynasty? Someone took you to the ing cleaners, mister. The glaze is rubbish. It was astounding, and Mr. Pin had been so enthralled that he'd all but forgotten to slip a few small valuable items into his pocket. But in truth, he was familiar with Tulip on art. When they had occasionally to torture premises, Mr. Tulip always made sure that any truly irreplaceable pieces were removed first, even though that meant taking extra time to tie the inhabitants to their beds. Somewhere under that self-inflicted scar tissue, and at the heart of that shuddering anger, was the soul of a true connoisseur with an unerring instinct for beauty. It was a strange thing to find in the body of a man who would mainline bath salts. The big doors at the other end of the room swung open, revealing the dark space beyond. "'Mr. Tulip?' said Mr. Pin. Mr. Tulip drew himself away from a painstaking examination of a possible tapasi table, with its magnificent inlay work involving dozens of Ing rare veneers. Huh? Time to meet the bosses again, said Mr. Pin. William was just getting ready to leave his office for good when someone knocked at the door. He opened it cautiously, but it was pushed the rest of the way. You utterly, utterly ungrateful person! It wasn't a nice thing to be called, especially by a young lady. She used a simple word like ungrateful in a way that would require a dash and an ing in the mouth of Mr. Tulip. William had seen Saccharissa Cripslock before, generally helping her grandfather in his tiny workshop. He'd never paid her much attention. She wasn't particularly attractive, but she wasn't particularly bad-looking either. She was just a girl in an apron doing slightly dainty things in the background, such as light dusting and arranging flowers. Insofar as he'd formed any opinion of her, it was that she suffered from misplaced gentility and a mistaken belief that etiquette meant good breeding. She mistook mannerisms for manners. Now he could see her a lot plainer, mostly because she was advancing towards him across the room, and in the light-headed way of people who think they're just about to die, he realised that she was quite good-looking, if considered over several centuries. Concepts of beauty change over the years, and two hundred years ago, Saccharissa's eyes would have made the great painter Caravati bite his brush in half. Three hundred years ago, the sculptor Mauvais would have taken one look at her chin and dropped his chisel on his foot. A thousand years ago, 
the Ephebian poets would have agreed that her nose alone was capable of launching at least forty ships, and she had good medieval ears. Her hand was quite modern, though, and it caught William a stinging blow on the cheek. "'That twenty dollars a month was nearly all we had.' "'Sorry, what?' "'All right, he isn't very fast, but in his day he was one of the best engravers in the business.' "'Oh, yes, um—' William had a sudden flash of guilt about Mr. Cripslock. "'And you took it away just like that?' "'I didn't mean to. The dwarfs just—things just happened.' "'You're working for them?' "'Sort of with them,' said William. "'While we starve, I suppose?' Saccharissa stood there panting. She had a well-crafted supply of other features that never go out of fashion at all, and are perfectly at home in any century. She clearly believed that severe, old-fashioned dresses toned these down. They did not. "'Look, I'm stuck with them,' said William, trying not to stare. "'I mean, stuck with the dwarfs. Lord Vetinari was very definite about it, and it's suddenly all become very complicated. "'The Guild of Engravers is going to be livid about this. You do know that?' she demanded. "'Er, uh, yes.' A desperate idea struck William rather harder than her hand. "'That's a point. You wouldn't like to, um, be official about that, would you? You know, we are livid,' says spokesman, uh, spokeswoman for the Guild of Engravers. "'Why?' she said suspiciously. "'I'm desperate for things to put in my next edition,' said William desperately. "'Look, can you help me? I can give you, oh, twenty pence an item, and I could use at least five a day.' She opened her mouth to snap a reply, but calculation cut in. "'A dollar a day?' she said. "'More, if they're nice and long,' said William, wildly. "'For that letter thing you do?' "'Yes.' "'A dollar?' "'Yes.' She eyed him with mistrust. "'You can't afford that, can you? I thought you only got thirty dollars yourself, you told Grandfather.' "'Things have moved on a bit. I haven't caught up with it myself, to tell you the truth.' She was still looking at him doubtfully, but natural Ankh-Morpork interest in the distant prospect of a dollar was gaining the upper hand. "'Well, I hear things,' she began, "'and, well, writing things down, I suppose that's a suitable job for a lady, isn't it? It's practically cultural.' "'Er, uh, close, I suppose.' "'I wouldn't like to do anything that wasn't... proper.' "'Oh, I'm sure it's proper.' "'And the Guild can't object to that, can they? You've been doing it for years, after all.' "'Look, "'I'm just me,' said William. "'If the Guild object, they'll have to sort it out with the patrician.' "'Well, all right, if you're sure it's an acceptable job for a young lady.' "'Come down to the printing works tomorrow, then,' said William. "'I think we ought to be able to produce another paper of news in a few days.' This was a ballroom, still plush in red and gold, but musty in the semi-darkness and ghostly with its shrouded chandeliers. The candlelight in the centre was dimly reflected from the mirrors around the walls. They had probably once brightened the place up considerably, but over the years some sort of curious tarnish had blotched its way across them, so that the reflections of the candles looked like dim subaqueous glows through a forest of seaweed. Mr. Pin was halfway across the floor when he realised that the only footsteps he could hear were his own. Mr. Tulip had veered off in the gloom and was dragging the shroud off something that had been pushed against one wall. "'Well, I'll be a—' the man began. "'It's a ing treasure, or thought so. A genuine ing intaglio Ernesto, too. See that mother-of-pearl work there?' "'This isn't the time, Mr. Tulip.' "'He only made six of them. Oh, no, they haven't even kept it ing-tuned.' "'God damn it, we're supposed to be professionals.' "'Perhaps your colleague would like it as a present?' 
said a voice from the centre of the room. There were half a dozen chairs around the circle of candlelight. They were an old-fashioned kind, and the backs curved out and up to form a deep leathery arch that had presumably been designed to keep out the draughts, but now gave the occupants their own deep pools of shadow. Mr. Pin had been here before. He'd admired the setup. Anyone inside the ring of candles couldn't see who was in the depths of the chairs, while at the same time being fully visible themselves. It occurred to him now that the arrangement also meant that the people in the chairs couldn't see who was in the other chairs. Mr. Pin was a rat. He was quite happy with the description. Rats had a lot to recommend them, and this layout had been dreamed up by someone who thought like him. One of the chairs said, "'Your friend Daffodil!' "'Tulip!' said Mr. Pin. "'Your friend Mr. Tulip would perhaps like part of your payment to be the harpsichord,' said the chair. "'It's not a ing harpsichord, it's a ing virginal,' growled Mr. Tulip. "'One ing string to a note instead of two, so called because it was an instrument for ing young ladies.' "'My word, was it?' said one of the chairs. "'I thought it was just a sort of early piano.' "'Intended to be played by young ladies,' said Mr. Pin smoothly. "'And Mr. Tulip does not collect art. "'He merely appreciates it. "'Our payment will be in gems as agreed. "'As you wish. "'Please step into the circle.' "'Ing harpsichord,' muttered Mr. Tulip. "'The new firm came under the hidden gaze of the chairs "'as they took up their positions. "'What the chairs saw was this.' Mr. Pin was small and slim and, like his namesake, slightly larger in the head than ought to be the case. If there was a word for him, apart from rat, it was dapper. He drank little, he watched what he ate, and considered that his body, slightly malformed though it was, was a temple. He also used too much oil on his hair and parted it in the middle in a way that was twenty years out of style, and his black suit was on the greasy side, and his little eyes were constantly moving, taking in everything. End of CD 2